co-hosting for this week's podcast is H.P. Leffler. Leffler is a 20-year Army veteran, the majority of that time spent as a Special Forces Green Beret. What we did for this episode is give you some tips on what you should do when you're traveling to a country like Egypt as a Westerner, as an American. There are some risks with that. We gave you tips on how you can mitigate those risks. There was a training accident at the Special Forces Qualification Course or Q Course where one soldier was killed and several others were injured. We talked about that and some of the dangers of training for war. There was a terrorist attack in the UK. We talked about the attack itself, uh, some of the response, and some of the things that you can do to mitigate some of the risk as someone who's there as it happens. This is this week's Global Recon Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by Abe's Bauman. For more than 20 years, the experienced attorneys have helped veterans across the country get the benefits they deserve. No one fights harder to protect the rights of veterans. Find out more at abesbauman.com slash vets. That's A-B-E-S-B-A-U-M-A-N-N dot com slash vets. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, H.P. Leffler. And uh, Leffler is a recently retired Green Beret. I mean, very recently. Uh, Leff, how's it going, brother? Not bad, man. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm like overcoming a cold. I've been like sick all week, but. <laughs> Nothing is worse than the late summer colds where you don't really know where you came, that it came from, but you feel like crap anyway. Yeah. And it it always happens. And, um, you know, I, I hit the gym trying to sweat some of it out, but. Uh, you know, even hitting the gym is like you don't get the same workout, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's hard to it's hard to smash things when you can't breathe. Yeah. All right. So what we have for our audience today is Leffler is going to give you guys some tips, uh, safety tips, uh, you know, contingency planning. What do you do if shit goes south when you are in a country like Egypt, for example, and uh, in, in a place where Americans could potentially be targeted? Uh, you know, Egypt is a historically rich country. There's a lot of things to see there if you're interested in the history of, of mankind. And understandably so, a lot of people want to visit a place like Egypt. But at the same time, there's also some risk and danger to going to a place like that. Um, so, left. what what kind of... Uh, tips would you have for Americans or Westerners who are traveling to a place like Egypt? Well, it's got to start out, of course, long before you make the trip. 
Um, you know, we say all the time that the best way to, to get out of trouble is to not get into it. So, you know, you start with your doing your research, you know, you watch the news. If you know you're going to Egypt, you know, pay attention to the news, pay attention to what's going on in Egypt. Uh, the BBC is a really good source for that. Um, because at the end of the day, the British have a post-colonial interest in Egypt. And so, and the BB, and so they, they cover it. The BBC has a much better global take than your average American news source. Um, you know, on the BBC, you can find stuff about the things that are happening in these parts of the world where if you search an American news site, you'll find out that Justin Bieber went to jail again. So it's, you know, you start with that. And with everything, you know, it's it's decision making. I want to go to Egypt, but there's riots in Cairo right now. Is this trip really worth it to me? You know, I don't care how much money you've thrown at it. I don't care if your tickets are non-refundable. You're non-refundable. If you take the trip because your tickets are non-refundable, you are you're rolling the dice, right? But let's assume that you've done all that and, and everything is okay. Um, you get to a place like Egypt where tempers can flare and things can get out of hand very quickly. The first thing you need to do is make sure, make absolutely sure that you have checked in with the American embassy. Make sure you have your passport with you all the time so that if something silly happens, first of all, most places outside the United States, you're required to have your passport on you all the time anyhow. Secondly, if something happens and you need to get your ass to the embassy and leave, you can do it with just the clothes on your back and your passport. Keep enough cash on you so that you can expedite that. But don't keep so much cash on you that you're going to attract attention. Don't go to the bad parts of town. You know, a lot of this stuff is just, you know, big city survival 101. But for a foreign country, you know, the other thing, the other big, big thing is to remember that you're in their country and that American acceptance of foreigners and of foreign tourists isn't universal. If you're a woman and you're in Egypt, cover your hair. You may not like it. You may feel that that represents a, a religion which is oppressive to women and whatever else. Great. If it's that big a deal to you, then don't go. Don't wear bright colors. Don't wear things that are going to attract, you know, attract attention. You know, if you're a woman with, especially in a place like Egypt, and you've got long blonde hair and you're rolling around with it uncovered, you're going to attract a lot of attention. And if something happens, you're going to become a target. Again, I'm not asking you to like it. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm suggesting that that one little piece of deference to their culture and their faith may be enough to get whatever, whoever is doing whatever is happening 
to choose somebody else. Choose a soft target. Choose somebody that is more a flagrant violator of the sovereign soil of wherever. Um, that's that's the biggest thing, you know. Find out from the embassy when you get there where the bad parts of town are. Look at you know go to the State Department website. Look for travel advisories about the places that you're at. Um, some people would tell you to not stay at hotels that are frequented by Americans. I would tend to tell you the opposite. Um, more from a strength in numbers kind of thing, too, because if things go really, really sideways and the embassy needs to coordinate for your extraction, being at a hotel that they're already familiar with is going to help, right? Um, as far Instead of finding some little Airbnb, I've rented some you know, locals apartment in the middle of wherever village that you can't even explain to the embassy how to get there. Um, that, you know, I would stay at a hotel that is familiar to the embassy that is near the embassy. If possible, don't bring your cell phone. I, if you need a cell phone there, I would buy, you know, buy a, a dump phone. You know, buy a phone at the airport with a, a prepaid SIM card, um, use it in the country and then and then drop it when, when you leave. You know, keep this keep the phone as a as a souvenir of your trip. Um, in, insofar as specific threats for, say, Egypt in particular, um, that, that's I mean, that's really it. Keep your head on a swivel. You know, keep, you know, everybody has this sense of, okay, things in this crowd of people are starting to go a little sideways. Um, It's time to leave. You know, like when you're out at the bar late at night and all of a sudden, you know, the real shady folks start showing up at the bar, it's probably time to leave. Same same sort of thing. And if something happens that is totally unexpected, again, keep keep calm. You're not going to help anybody by losing your by losing your mind. Just grab your stuff, get your loved ones and go to the embassy. When in doubt, go to the embassy. That's that that that's sort of that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, I think a big part of it, too, is just having that situational awareness to where if things are starting to get a little funky, you can kind of see it a little bit before it happens. You see people's body language and, and, you know, if if you're on a bus, like a tour bus headed to one of the pyramids or something like that, and you see that the driver is, is getting a little animated, you know, somebody's talking to the driver from outside, you know, things like that, I feel like is, uh, is underrated in terms of, uh, even if it's not traveling to Egypt, I mean, traveling anywhere, right? Right. Now, absolutely. Um, the, uh, it, there's a lot of these things that are, that are the same, but it's, it, it's kind of the, the, the color scale, you know, condition yellow for a longer, happier life. You know, we can't, we can't live in condition yellow all the time, but if you're, if you're a stranger in a strange land, especially someplace where, 
you know, in recent memory, Americans have been attacked. Bad things have happened. There's been riots. There's been all this other stuff. Um, it, it behooves you to stay in condition yellow all the time and be prepared to shift that up or down, you know, per, from condition yellow when you're out in public in a place like Cairo. There's really nowhere to go but up. Um, you know, again, I am not trying to suggest that everyone in Egypt is going to knife you as soon as you get off the plane. That's insane. Um, I'm not trying, I'm not suggesting that everyone in a Middle Eastern country is trying to knife you or that there's going to be a riot. I mean, we've seen a period of relative stability in Egypt for a while now, but you know, none of the, none of the issues that caused the riots in the first place have changed all that much. I mean, yeah, okay. They deposed Hosni Mubarak, but, and then there was more riots when, Mubarak was released from prison, but all, I mean, that's still a very, that whole North African area is still very much, you know, a, a, a powder keg. And as Americans, most of us do not understand necessarily what really it is that can set those things off. So just pay attention, you know, enjoy yourself, go see that stuff. I mean, there's a lot of amazing stuff in Cairo. It's, I mean, even if you don't go see all the touristy stuff, just to see Cairo is, it, it's eye-opening. But you need to keep your wits about you. You know, I'm not going to go into start talking about doing a bunch of, you know, super spy guy stuff. You're not no, you know, you're not an intelligence officer probably shouldn't act like an intelligence officer because if you're not an intelligence officer and you start acting like an intelligence officer, you're going to find yourself doing, you know, like what, like, don't, don't rely on Tom Clancy. Just check in at the embassy or the embassy is be smart about what to do. Just like any other major city in the world. Yeah. And and thanks for that. And I think people, because there are people, Americans, especially who travel to some of these places where things could you know, get bad quickly. And I think it's just important that people are prepared for it. And like you said before, you know, don't make yourself a soft target. Um, you know, you want to do things that'll maybe make someone look at you and think, you know what, it'll be a little bit of a more, a little bit more of a struggle. If I go after this person, let me, let me go after someone else. Um, or, or, you know, it's, you know what, of these two people who are an offense to my faith, or an offense to my nationality or whatever. This one is the more egregious example. So I'm going to go after that. Right. You know, um, you know, Americans, especially when it comes to the Middle East, Americans tend to have one of two opinions about it. Opinion one, of course, is that as soon as you get off the Middle East or get off the plane in the Middle East, some psycho with an AK and a bomb strapped to his chest is going to be your taxi driver. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> Complete rubbish. On the other hand, people tend to think that, oh, everyone is so nice. The whole world is so beautiful. And I'm, you know, I'm an American and I love everybody. And look at look at all this great and wonderful, happy go barfy thing things I've been saying. And they tend to be totally blind to the threats that are out there. And so 
you know, the truth, as with all truth, is somewhere in between those two, right? I mean, you step off the plane in Cairo, you're not almost certainly, I'm not, I mean, there's no guarantees in life. I mean, I suppose you could get attacked by a polar bear and a regular bear on the same day, (laughs) but you're probably not going to get blown up at the Cairo airport. You're probably not going to roll out the door of baggage claim you know, with your North face rolling duffel behind you and find yourself in a street riot. If that happens, I mean, a, probably they've shut down the airport anyway, but if that happens, you kind of should have been paying more attention to the news. Um, but again, there are bad people out there in every major city in every country in the world who, if given the opportunity will do horrible things to you. So be smart. Right, it's it's really pretty simple, you know. Just kind of be aware, be smart, uh, you know, th- that kind of thing. Um, yeah, have people at home that you check in with every day. Right, right. Um, if you're if if you're a, if you're abroad, you know, have somebody back in the states who you know they know the deal. Listen, if you have not heard from me by this o'clock your time, call the embassy in wherever you're at. You know, um, and make sure they have the number. Right. And, and some of these these small, small pieces of advice could really make a difference. And, um, you know, if things do go bad or get bad. And I mean, and, you know, the whole bit about having people to check in with. I, I've seen how that works firsthand with guys overseas in, in a in a situation where things are almost expected to go bad, but that really makes a huge difference. You know, having people that, that are checking in on you and making sure things are okay. Um, and I'm sure that's something you're familiar with as well. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it's a safety wire, right? If, if, if you and I are on a, on a bus in Cairo and it, and it gets hijacked and you and I find ourselves hogtied and thrown in the trunk of some 1959 Peugeot, and we have no opportunity to call the embassy. We have no opportunity to get to the embassy. We know that X many hours later, when whoever it is back in the States hasn't heard from us, they're going to call the embassy and let the embassy know. So even so, even if the worst possible case happens, this, this event went down and nobody at the embassy has any idea, at least that phone call will start things moving. It may not. They may not move as fast as we would like them to, but they're moving and it's a start. And the embassy can go and reach out to the Egyptian authorities and start the start the process. So, you know, it's it, it's all about being smart and it's all about keeping, you know, making sure that you have an ability to reach back and that somebody is kind of having overwatch on you to make sure that if the worst possible thing happens, that somebody is going to have your back. Right. Or at least that someone knows, you know, your last location and people are are trying to look for you as soon as they can, which in in situations where people get kidnapped, you know, that could be the difference, you know, if people are looking for you right Mm -hmm. away versus, you know, they don't know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, so so this week, um, a, a couple of days ago, there was a a training accident 
at the Special Forces Qualification Course, which obviously you're familiar with from uh, your time as a Green Beret, but a, a staff sergeant, uh, Alexander uh, Dalida, I'm not I probably butchered the name, 32 of Dunstable, Massachusetts, uh, he was killed in this accident, and seven others were injured uh, at the... Uh, the Q course, Special Forces Qualification course. I, I believe it was a, a demolitions accident. I believe it was, uh, you know, perhaps he was going through the 18 Charlie course, the, and that is the designation for a Special Forces soldier who is an expert in explosives. Uh, obviously, they're not releasing all the information. Uh, a lot of this stuff, or all of it, is, is, is classified, and, you know, they'll just release some of the information, like the name of the soldier and whatnot. Um you know, being a Green Beret and for as long as you have been, you know, deploying several times, training for combat, you know, and this is just an example of how dangerous it is when you're just training for combat. And I feel like people don't really understand that um, as Americans. Like people only think about, oh, well, you can only die if you go to a, de- a combat deployment and that when you're here in the States, everything is fine and dandy. Right. Now, it, it's, I mean, first of all, my heart goes out to, you know, to, to everyone affected by that. You know, the victims, of course, um, the, the, those who are injured. Um, and, you know, to a lesser extent, or maybe in a different way, to the people that have to clean up the mess. Um, obviously, and for good reason, there's going to be a huge investigation, and there's going to be a lot of people who, probably didn't do anything wrong who are going to get kind of run through the ringer. And that's unfortunate. Um, yes, training, this sort of training is not inherently safe. You're taking somebody with limited experience and you're teaching them how to use things that explode. That is not an inherently safe act. Um, it is unreasonable to expect a perfect safety record. It, it it's it's very dangerous. Um, you know they say in football you can't really, you know you you can't really train to play football without without a little bit of hitting. You know you can't you can't become a good weightlifter without lifting weights. You can't become a you know you can't become a good runner without running. You're not going to be able to go forward and wage war without some training that is not inherently safe. Now. We do everything that we can, everything within the scope of what what we consider to be like reasonable reality to, you know, to mitigate that. We have this huge uh, composite risk management process whereupon we look at every possible thing that we can imagine that can go wrong. And try to find a way to mitigate it. Um, you know, it's dangerous enough to go to a foreign country and maybe get shot at. Nobody wants to get nobody wants to get hurt in the states. Um, having said that, it's going to happen sometimes. As cold as this may sound, and I certainly don't mean it to. Um, and also, keep in mind, I have not seen the results of any of this i haven't talked to anybody down there who might be able to say yeah we did this or yeah we did that i mean assuming for a moment that 
this is just one of those things. You know, you're teaching somebody how to use explosives. You know, if they forgot to carry the one, if they were looking at the wrong formula, if, you know, maybe there's too many, maybe there's too many troops in the class, maybe whatever. Um, you know, maybe it was a bad batch of explosives from the factory. Maybe the, the, the fuse was bad. Maybe whatever. Maybe, the, you know, I mean, there's any number of maybes. So, you know, you, you do the best you can to mitigate it. And when something happens, you, you try to learn from it. Um, but it, it is a very dangerous thing. I mean, we are, and this is all members of the military for the most part, are called upon to do things that are not inherently safe. You know, driving a six billion ton tank through the mountains at night, not inherently safe. You know, firing artillery shells, not inherently safe. Getting into a steel vehicle miles out at sea and taking that vehicle locked inside it, oh, by the way, uh, onto a hostile, you know, onto shore, even in training, is not inherently safe. Getting into a giant steel tube and sink and intentionally sinking it in the water, not inherently safe. I mean, hell, even some of the, you know, the less glamorous jobs, if you've ever driven on some of those military installations, not inherently safe. So um, a lot of what we do is not inherently safe. And it's, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the more history has shown time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, that the more, the harder you train in training, the less you bleed in combat. And so it's extremely important to continue and to not let accidents like this, like cause people to panic and start, you know, infant proofing the Q course, infant proofing, you know, combat training, because that doesn't do anybody any good. Right. It's like you, you have to continue on because the nature of the business is dangerous, period. Uh, you know, a guy gets killed in an accident. But the reality is, you know, yourself, uh, guys like yourself, you guys are going through this training because you're going to experience or come across explosives or or have to detonate explosives in a combat zone, which is obviously in very dangerous and and just by the nature of it, the, the training has to be dangerous, right? I mean, you guys are airborne qualified. You're jumping out of airplanes with, you know, 150 pounds of gear on. You know, that's very dangerous. Shooting with live ammunition in close spaces, that's very dangerous. So it's like, you know, people, I mean, people understand this, obviously. And then there's people who just, you, you don't think about it and you just think, oh, wow, someone was killed in training. How, you know, how can that happen? And... Well, part of it, of course, is, you know, the, the inherent risk. And part of the reason for like our composite risk management program is to kind of keep people who have been around a while honest. You know, there's a, they say, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, you know, you, you get too used to what you're doing and it becomes not a big deal anymore, you know, um, I, I use the analogy of NFL players all the time. You know, for most of us, we look at the NFL and we're like, wow, those guys are amazing. 
I mean, because the bottom line is the worst player on the worst team in the NFL is still one of the best football players in the, in the country, bar none. End right. of story. And I wonder at what point do they wake up and just to them that's normal. I'm, an, I'm a football player in the National Football League. Yep, this is what I do. It's not that big a deal. All my friends do it. You know, why don't I don't know. Anybody can do it if they tried. You know, anybody can do it if they really put their mind to it. And while, you know, those of us on the outside are going, well, that's ludicrous. You know, the same thing is true of, you know, whatever it is. If you're if you're an artilleryman, um, you know, getting out and shooting the shooting the big guns becomes like, well, all right, I guess we're going to go to the range or something and shoot cannons again. You know, or if you're an airborne guy, it's like, oh, great. It's this time of month. I guess I'm, you know, I guess we're going to have to jump, you know, and it, does, it doesn't become a thing. And it's it, like we used to say in the airborne community, as soon as you're not afraid, not a little bit afraid to jump. And I don't mean, I don't mean terrified, obviously. I don't mean like shaking with fear. But when you're not, when you're not no longer a little nervous to jump, it's time to stop jumping because you've stopped paying attention to the little thing. Right. You know, and, you know, that that is the case with everything. Oh, I, OK, I guess it's time to go blow stuff up again. Um, I guess it's time to whatever again. So that that's the other side of it, too. Yes, it's an inherently dangerous act. But, you know, human beings can get used to anything. You know, I guarantee you, if you grabbed a NASCAR driver. You know, and I, again, I'm not a giant NASCAR fan, but I can tell you, I don't have I don't have the stones to drive six inches behind somebody you know the person in front of me is bumper at 200 miles an hour you're out of your mind i'd be like wait what no 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 no. let's just slow down because this is crazy and i'm just gonna be over here and you all can get where you're going and that's fine and i'll get there when i get there and end of story so and but it just becomes it just becomes part of what you do and you know that's why we do the investigations that's why we have the um you know, the, the risk management process in place. Right. So moving on, there was a recently what is, I believe, the fifth terrorist attack in the UK since the start of this year or the sixth. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a it was in a train station. Uh, 30 people were injured. And now the it was a homemade bomb that partially exploded. Uh, during rush hour on Friday, and the terrorism threat level has been raised in the UK, and they are now arresting a bunch of people. Um, right. And, you know, this is like, this is the sixth, fifth or sixth attack, so this whole process has, we've we've done this already. You know, the attack happens, a bunch of people are getting arrested, but then if you turn on the news or you watch any of the commentators talk about it, you'll hear things like, Oh, you know, if they knew if they knew about some of these people, if some of these people were they were aware of them already. Why is it that they wait until something happens to go and make arrest or or that kind of thing? Um, and I, I know there's some, there must be some kind of reason for this, um, and, and it, it may have to do with uh, you know people's sovereign rights as citizens, uh, that kind of thing. And so, what's your take on this? And and uh, you know, on top of that, you know, as a Green Beret. You know, dealing uh, dealing in a world where you're you have to understand your enemy in order to effectively fight them or counter them. You know, w- what are some of your thoughts on the responses and and 
potential ways to deal with some of these things? Well, first of all, I am absolutely not going to comment at all or even speculate on why the British Security Service may have left um, known you know, known people in place. Um, the, the reasons for that, in my view, go from the painfully obvious, uh, you know, it, it's a free society, a society of laws where the law applies equally to everyone, to the much more, um, you know, the, 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 the investigative theory and, you know, and all that stuff. I'm not a member of the British Security Service. I am not. You know, I certainly would not appreciate a member of the British Security Service commenting on some of my operations in Afghanistan. So I will do them the, the courtesy of not discussing their techniques, except to say that I think that beating the drum and, and, and getting all upset about, well, if they knew about this ahead of time, why didn't they arrest these people? I think if you stop and you apply some some thought to that. The, the answer is fairly self-evident on, on, on a lot of levels. Um, insofar as the attack goes, yeah, it was, it was a, a homemade bomb. Um, a, from what I've been able to gather, a poorly made homemade bomb. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 30 people were injured. You know, some from flash wounds, like flash burns, okay. But a lot of them were from getting trampled as people panicked and tried to escape the explosion. And while that is certainly understandable, um, you know, again, like I said earlier, panicking doesn't help anyone. You know, people getting crushed against the wall of the, the, the tube as people are trying to escape the blast, you know, um, very rarely have I found myself to be the most effective when I'm completely out of my mind. Right. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I could you know, go through all the, 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 the trite little, well, if, if you see something, say something, man, you get on a subway. You're not looking for paint cans with wires, right. you know, you're, you know, and I mean, how do you know what these guys look like? How do you know, like getting, I mean, think about, think about every time you've been on in New York city. And, and, and ridden the subway and looked around and gone, what is – or D.C. or any other major city. And you look around and you see people and you're like, what is wrong with that dude? Right. But that dude didn't put a bomb on the train. You know, so how do you – you know, at the end of the day, you know, again, sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But again, you know, you look at, say, the attack on the Boston Marathon. You know, what this tells me is that, you know, the importance of carrying like a small personal first aid kit. And I don't mean like Band-Aids and Advil, right? I mean like a tourniquet. Right. Some you know, for, I mean the ability control. to stop major hemorrhaging. Right. The ability to at least temporarily deal with some of these much more life-threatening injuries until the authorities can get there. You know, we're not, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to roll around with a, with an IFAC on them, 
Um, you know, I'd be willing to bet there were paramedics on the scene within 10 minutes. But the ability to stop bleeding, the ability to, you know, to, to handle that. And really, you know, again, some of this is it's mental preparation. It's understanding that this might be possible. Right. You know, obviously, I'm not suggesting that people go out and ride subways around and do like bomb reaction drills. One, that's insane. Two, you're just going to scare everybody else. Three, you're probably going to get arrested. Right. Yeah. But you've, I've found that if you can at least think through a problem before you're presented with it, the ability to deal with it is much greater. You know, we talk yes. about. I, you talk I'm glad about, you said about, that. Yeah. You talk a lot about muscle memory. Well, really, muscle memory is nothing more than building up. Like every time you perform an action, right? You are creating a, a byproduct, which is known as myelin, and myelin coats the nerves, and it's like gold coating a wire, right? It makes it that much more efficient. So what we know of as muscle memory is really just the fact that your brain's commands to those nerves are, travel more efficiently than others. So you get, you know, you're a, you're a police officer. And you spent a long time on the range developing muscle memory, developing a reaction to an unforeseen threat, right? And then, boom, threat occurs. And the way it was, is to, it was told to me is that – and obviously this isn't legit, you know, actually true. But for all practical purposes, it's like your brain and your ass separate. And your brain is going, what is going on right now? What is happening? What, what, what? Meanwhile, your ass is just doing what it's doing because of all the training, because of all the practice. And then at some point they catch back up and the brain brain looks at ass and goes, what just happened? And ass goes, well, this just happened. And I did this, this and this. Where have you been? Right. So and, and the that's, ability. That's the muscle memory kind of. Factor that is it. the muscle memory thing. Now, obviously, for something like, you know, a, a, a bomb on a subway. You're not going to be able to legitimately develop muscle memory to deal with that. But again, you know, if you've thought through a problem, you, you will at least have a better idea and a head start on the other people. Right. right. Is it the best possible answer to get off this train right now? Maybe, maybe not. If you're right by the door, of course it is. Right. You know, but maybe you're a family with small kids, you know. Um, there is literally nothing more lethal on earth than an enraged crowd. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do from stopping that. So the best possible course of action is to, you know, maybe the best course of action is to grab your, grab your, your family and tuck them into a corner and let the panic people go, just get, go, just go. You know, and that, of course, is going to be based on your assessment of the threat and your assessment of what's going on and your ability to not panic. Right. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up to where you're, you're thinking about something potentially before it happens. And especially for people who ride subways in New York City every day or the subway in D.C. or, you know, any major metropolis or a place where there's a lot of people in the United States or in Europe or anywhere. Um, yeah. you know, thinking about these kind of things and, and, and I do it myself because I do, 
ride the subway a lot. So it's like, um, you know, I try and sit in a position where I'm near one of the exits, you know, just in case. And like you said, you can't exactly train or plan for something spontaneous. But if you think about, hey, if, if something happens, I'm exiting through this door. If the threat comes from that door, then I'm exiting through the other door. And if you just spend a little bit of time thinking about these things on a regular basis, it becomes normal to you. And it may give you a leg up or a head start if something does go south. And and, and I think it's something that everybody should practice. And, you know, I've, I've ridden the subway. And, and just a, a quick little story. There was a... Uh, it was last year or something like that. There was a, you know, a, a series of slashings. People were getting cut in the face by like random people on the subway. And so, you know, as someone who rides the subway often, I'm like, all right, uh, I don't want to be one of these people who get cut in the face. And the chances of me getting cut in the face are very not likely. But anyway, I would still like to be prepared. So I remember I was on the subway and this guy gets on and he is pacing back and forth between uh, two poles, like where the exit doors are. So that immediately made me uh, take note of him. And then it, it almost looked like he had a screwdriver or something kind of concealed, like half concealed in, in the, the end of his hoodie sleeve. And then you can see like the metal sharper end in his fingers. But he was like concealing it, but I could see it. And I'm watching this dude pace back and forth and there's just everyone around is just not paying attention people have their headphones on people are reading their kindles or reading their books and i'm like if this guy decided to just lose his shit and just swing that at somebody he's gonna potentially kill someone or hurt somebody and no one's paying attention but let's say he's he swang it at me you know i i would have a good chance of defending myself because i'm already on him and, and he doesn't even know that i'm i'm noticing him you know and i think those type of things, just thinking about them, could really mean a difference in a in a situation if it does go about uh, south. Sorry, absolutely. You know, and then you know, there's the other part of that too, where it's, uh, you know, it's like the Rudyard Kipling poem. You know, if you can keep your head when all others are losing theirs. Um, it's. I mean, the poem is much longer than I have memorized, but that's that's the big one. You know, if you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs, you know that's that's what is going to separate your ability to survive the incident as unscathed as possible, and you know, and and the rest of the crowd. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Lef, I just want to thank you for uh, doing this with me today. I know you got to get out of here and um, take care of some of your business. Of course, man. Happy to do it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. We're going to be doing shorter length podcasts, but putting out episodes a little more often. For the next podcast, in a couple of days, we're going to be talking about SEER School, which is the Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School uh, Leffler was an instructor there for a couple of years. Obviously, a lot of what goes on there is highly classified. We're not going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about giving you guys a general outline of it, why it's important. And we're going to talk about uh, Colonel Nick Rowe, who is a special forces soldier who was captured in Vietnam and then escaped. And he is credited with uh, starting the SEER program. And he wrote a very good book called Five Years to Freedom, 
I read it a couple of months ago. Obviously, guys who are going through SEER school or reading it. And we're going to go over some of the book for you guys as well. As always, we encourage you to like, share, subscribe, and download these episodes. That way, we can remain at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes. And that way, we know that you guys want us to continue to do this podcast for you. My website is www.globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IGRecon. The second account I have is Black Ops Matter. There's two co-hosts for this show. Uh, Chantel Taylor, as most of you guys are familiar with, her military account on Instagram is mission underscore critical. She wrote a very good book about one of her deployments to Afghanistan called Battle One, the memory, the memoir of a combat medic in Afghanistan. It's available everywhere. Books are sold. The easiest place to get it is probably on Amazon. Uh, Leffler for now has an Instagram account. It's forerunner.freya. So that's four, the number four, R-U-N-N-E-R dot F-R-E-Y-J-A. Check him out on there. Uh, he posts regularly uh, things you guys might be interested in, outdoor stuff, everyday carry type of stuff, you know, pistol, knife, uh, that kind of thing. And we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.